Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. On Friday, the UK Chancellor unveiled his mini-budget, with the biggest tax cuts in 50 years. The market reaction was swift and brutal. Sterling crashed to a record low versus the dollar, and UK borrowing costs spiked. I want to know why the market reacted so negatively, and what it means for those of us who own UK assets. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, why not invest everything in the US stock market? Okay, let's get into it. So this was termed a mini budget, but I think it's fair to say it was anything but mini, and the reaction has certainly been major. So Robin, <laughs> have you been surprised with the scale of the market reaction to this budget? Absolutely. I mean, I've never seen anything like it over the course of my career. So for example, what's happened to sterling suggests that there's a major crisis, and what's happened to UK government bond yields is even worse. And I think that's probably going to be the more disruptive of the two. Yeah, I think the fall in sterling is the thing that grabs the headlines, isn't it? Because, you know, we're just not used to approaching parity with the dollar and potentially the euro and things like that. But the rise in borrowing costs for the UK at the very time we're going to need to borrow a lot of money is far from ideal. (laughs) I think that's one of the problems. And I think it's going to affect people's everyday lives hugely. Now, obviously, the things that we think about most when it comes to borrowing are things like mortgages, And those costs are likely to rise very sharply. And some of that rise will be a direct result of the increased borrowing costs due to this new mini budget. But then also you've got to consider that companies which are borrowing in the bond markets or via bank loans will also start to have to pay more to roll over their debt and to expand their company. So I think that's going to have huge impacts in the years to come. So maybe let's just take a quick step back and say, how did we get here? How did we get to this position where then we've got a new government, or a new administration at least, who announced a massive radical departure from what the old Conservative government was doing, and it's sort of thrown everything into the air and the markets don't really know what to do. So I think the background really is that during the pandemic, there was a huge amount of government borrowing and spending, obviously, to support people through the furlough scheme and other schemes. And consequently, taxes were due to rise. And I think the UK tax burden was set to grow to over 36% of GDP by 2025, which would be the highest level since the war. And naturally, traditional conservatives are not going to like that, are they? They're in favour of lower taxes. And so Liz Truss came in and her promise was, we're going to go for growth. We're going to try and aim for GDP growth of 2.5% per year, which would be significantly above the long-term trend for the UK. And certainly from my point of view, you know, it makes sense to go for growth. It's just maybe the sums don't add up. Maybe their promises aren't going to deliver, right? And the way that you achieve growth, I think, is really important. So would simply not increasing corporate tax rates create growth, greater growth in the years ahead? And the big assumption here is that you're going to give companies more money, essentially, at the end of the day. You know, they have a certain amount of revenue, which is the same, but they're paying less of it away in taxes. What do they do with the extra cash? Do they reinvest it back into their company, which is great because that does create growth? Or do they hoard the cash because they think we're entering a weaker period for the economy, there'll be less demand for their goods and services, and they're trying to kind of create a a buffer against that loss in revenue? And I think that's actually more likely. So I think the kind of fundamental justification for cutting corporate tax rates, which is that companies will reinvest, is questionable. Let's hope that they do, because we really need the growth right now. And I've got to say, you know, I was really pleased to see that we actually had a growth plan 
And they actually acknowledged at the right at the beginning of the growth plan that growth was a problem, which is quite reassuring. Yeah, no, I agree. Growth has clearly been the problem with the UK. It's the question of why haven't we had growth? Why haven't we had productivity growth? It seems to me that the argument that is implicit in Liz Truss's policies is that we've had too high a taxes, therefore growth has been weak. But I just don't see that, right? So corporation tax, which you're talking about, it's 19%. That's the level, which is the lowest in the G20. Now, it was due to rise to 25%, and the mini budget effectively abandoned that tax rise. So it's not like we're cutting corporate taxes from where they were. They're just staying the same. So <laughs> how is that going to be boosting growth? Because it hasn't boosted growth over the previous decade. So I think that's a problem. I think there are aspects of the plan which are positive. So they are saying the right things about spending on infrastructure. Now, a lot of it, I mean, if you actually read the report, there's a huge section in one of the appendices where they actually list all of the roundabouts and roads in every region so that you can Google for your local road to find out whether it's going to be kind of souped up. But there's also stuff about energy. One of the controversial things is that they're going to plow money into increasing the number of licenses for fossil fuel producers so that they can do more exploration because clearly there's been huge underinvestment in that sector. But also some clean energy. So, for example, onshore and offshore wind projects, but also some other decarbonisation infrastructure projects. Yeah, so that's interesting because onshore wind has effectively been banned for quite a long time now. So bringing that back into the energy mix, I would be very much in favour of that. And then things like digital infrastructure for Project Gigabit, which I believe is the broadband rollout for the UK. So it would be great if it came to Holmer Green. Just saying, Liz. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be great for me too, so we didn't have to keep restarting on this. So I think some of the infrastructure stuff is great. You know, I think it's about time we saw that. Other parts of it, which I think are more questionable, are things like the Freeport, where you create a kind of deregulated zone where planning permission is easier to get. There are less environmental constraints in terms of building work. And there's potentially a tax break for the companies that operate in those spaces. Yeah, big tax breaks, actually. So like 100% relief from business rates for newly occupied premises. 100% first year allowance on qualifying expenditure for plant and machinery. Like these are massive tax breaks. And I think the argument from skeptical economists is these kind of investment zones, all they really do is move economic activity from one area to the investment zone. In the round, they don't actually usually increase economic activity in the country. And we have had freeports for a while. I think it's simply kind of increasing the scale of those and hoping that that's going to somehow fix the growth problem. Whereas I think one of the fundamental problems in the UK is if you look at a map of productivity, essentially you've got London and the South East, where salaries are very high, and then you've got the rest of the country where salaries are very low. And somehow you've got to create more hubs of growth, more large cities where you've got a kind of mini London. Birmingham, Manchester, the obvious places, Liverpool, Edinburgh up in Scotland, Glasgow, you know, all of these cities, which are kind of like second tier cities, shouldn't have such a huge step downwards in terms of productivity relative to London. Yeah, it would be nice if we didn't all have to cram inside the M25 just to get (laughs) a decent job. But it's difficult because if you are someone that's young and you want opportunities, you've basically got one choice at the moment in the UK. You know, if you want to have a high salary, if you want to work in investment banking or in the media, then London's a natural place to go. 
I think ultimately the solution would involve making it a kind of multi-hub economy with less stark differences between the North and the South, and particularly the Southeast. I mean, the government has talked a lot about levelling up over the years. It did really well in the so-called red wall seats. It's just whether it can deliver, right, on those promises. And I think all this stuff we've talked about here about deregulation and investment in infrastructure, to me, that's not the controversial bit of this mini budget. Well, you can argue about the nuances of whether free ports and investment zones are going to actually boost growth. But that's not what freaked the market out. What freaked the market out is the biggest tax cuts since 1972, <laughs> all to be funded by borrowing. Yeah, I think that's a fundamental problem. And it's a question about debt sustainability and how the thing's going to be funded. So normally you wouldn't do tax cuts at the same time as the cost of borrowing is soaring. And also you've got the greater spending on infrastructure. So I think that combination is fairly toxic. And that's what really freaked out markets, because it made you think, what on earth are they doing? You know, why would you do tax cuts at exactly the same time as you're going to have to ramp up borrowing hugely? That doesn't make sense. And remember, we're also ramping up borrowing to pay for energy subsidies this winter where the cost of that could be enormous. So we've talked before about how it's effectively a blank check because the government doesn't know what the cost of gas is actually going to be in the winter. Some estimates put it at £60 billion for consumers and £60 billion for businesses. And that's just for six months. You know, that's a huge amount of borrowing that's needed to fill that gap. And it's an unlimited downside. You know, this is the big short. But for a government, if you were a hedge fund, you'd never do this. You know, you wouldn't say, okay, I'll take unlimited downside on energy prices and I'll fund it with guilt issuance. You know, that's kind of crazy. Let's hope there's never a hedge fund that can print its own money. <laughs> we really will be all better off. <laughs> Although I saw there were two funds in the US that actually track members of Congress. You know, there's one for Democrats, which is Nance, N-A-N-C, and there's one for Republicans, which is... Cruise. Cruise, that's right, K-R-U-Z. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was great. If you, if you can't stamp out insider trading, then why not trade it yourself? So we need either a sort of trust or quasi. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just about corporate tax cuts where companies pay less taxes. There's also a huge set of changes in terms of national insurance, but also the additional rate of tax. Isn't that right? Yeah, so it's several things. National insurance that you mentioned, a rise came in this year, which was meant to pay for adult social care. That was a 1.25% rise. That's been cancelled. Then on the additional rate of income tax, which is what rich people pay, you know, people with like £150,000 plus in income, that's been cut from 45% down to 40%. And 40% is what everyone pays above, I think, 50,000-ish pounds. So, you know, it's kind of flattening the tax structure above 50,000 pounds. And then also the basic rate of income tax, which is sort of the lowest band, has been cut from 20% to 19%. And these kind of come in from April. And then on top of that, also stamp duty has been cut, which is the tax you pay when you buy a house. The starting point for that tax has been doubled effectively to £250,000. You know, in isolation, these are not necessarily bad moves. Like a lot of people have problems with stamp duty and say it sort of gums up the housing market and is economically inefficient. And that's fair enough. It's just you've got this huge swathe of tax cuts all coming at the same time, <laughs> at a time when debt is already high because we've been through the pandemic. We're having to borrow more because of this energy crisis. And yeah, the markets have gone, how are you going to pay for this? <laughs> and the answer is debt, right? So just to put some scale on the debt, the UK Debt Management Office, which is responsible for issuing gilts and you know, raising money for the government from the bond market, 
It's had to raise its planned bond sales for this financial year by £62 billion, pounds, all the way up to £194 billion now is what they expect. So, you know, the markets look at it and say, where are you going to get this extra money from? Is it going to come from us? Then you're going to have to pay more for it. Yeah, so the planned increase in gilt issuance is £62 billion, like you say. But that's just to cover the initial six-month cost of the energy price guarantee. But the problem is that you also have to fund the decreased tax intake. And there are estimates that that's going to cost around £100 billion to £200 billion over the next two years. So that's the huge amount of new issuance. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out that if you have a huge amount of issuance, so you're flooding the market with government bonds and people aren't rushing to buy them, then that's going to push up yields. Supply and demand, Roman. It's the basis for everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's just kind of essentially crash the bond market, I think is a fair way to describe it. So if you look at plots of the yield of government bonds over the last week or so, They've gone vertical. So if you look at the five-year rate of borrowing for the UK government, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen it rise so quickly. (laughs) I mean, just to put it in context, it's a higher borrowing cost than for Italy or Greek debt. So if we look at the five-year debt, you're right. For the UK, it's currently 4.4% as of the 26th. And for Italy, it's almost exactly 4%. So yeah, it's costing us more to borrow than Italy at the five-year point of the curve. And the rate of change of the UK borrowing costs is just staggering. So in January last year, the rate was less than 0%, right? In the COVID crisis, you could basically borrow for nothing if you were the government. A year ago, it was 0.5%. In March, it had risen to 1%. Last month, it was still just 1.5%. Two weeks ago, it was 3%. The end of last week, it was 3.5%. And now... It's 4.5%, isn't it? So it's just going up and up and up. Because people don't think there's going to be demand for it and people are shunning government debt in the UK. And I I think, look, at a certain point, the yields are going to become attractive. So this is kind of self-stabilising. If UK gilts are paying, I don't know, 5% at the five-year point and the US is paying 4.2, at a certain point, the UK will become very attractive. So this is going to stabilise, but it'll stabilise at much higher levels. And that's the worry. So not only is that going to increase the debt servicing costs for the UK government, but it affects every single borrowing market there is. So, for example, if you're wondering about how this will affect you, then if you've got a mortgage and you have to remortgage or you're coming off a fixed period and so you're forced to remortgage, then you're going to have to pay much, much more. So I think that's going to be what immediately affects most people in the UK. And three of the lenders in the UK, Virgin Money, Skipton Building Society and Halifax, have had to kind of withdraw a range of their products while they kind of sort out what's going on with borrowing rates. And when they put it back onto the market, you can bet it's going to be at a much higher rate. That's almost certainly going to have a negative effect on the housing market in the UK. Debt simply becomes unaffordable at current prices. And so, you know, expecting the housing market bubble not to be burst even though we've got the stamp duty reduction, is unrealistic, I think. How are you enjoying your new house, Roman? It's great. You top (laughs) tick the market, so always pleased to do that, you know? (laughs) I mean, the other thing about the government bond issuance is that the Bank of England has been the primary buyer for UK government bonds for the past few years. So in 2020-2021, of the £388 issued in government bonds by the UK government, 281 billion was bought by the Bank of England. 
And now we're entering a period of supposedly quantitative tightening from next month, where the Bank of England is meant to be reducing the size of its holdings by 80 billion over the next year. How do these add up? Well, they can mitigate the impact. I mean, they're not going to sell their bonds. They're just going to wait for them to mature and not reinvest the coupons and principal. So that's a lot less catastrophic than the Bank of England dumping its ownership of gilt onto the market and crashing it. That's simply not going to happen. They don't need the Bank of England to crash the market. No, they've done it themselves. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, you know, I think the other effect is going to have on many people particularly this new breed of DIY investors, the ones which are closer to retirement or are already in retirement, they assume that gilts are safe because, you know, where do you put money that's going to give you a little bit of income but isn't risky, has no credit risk? Well, it's the UK government. You lend them money. So if you see your gilts falling by 5% over the course of a week, you know, for five-year gilts, which are supposedly very safe, there's not a lot of duration risk, you wouldn't expect that. It's a huge shock. And I've had some difficult conversations with some of our pension crafters who are suffering directly as a result of this bond sell-off. You know, if you're in retirement, it's safety that you crave, quite rightly. And that safety's simply been taken away. I mean, it's not a pretty picture, is it? But how bad can it get? Because you'd think that there's going to have to be some reaction from, let's say, the Bank of England with raising rates. And there's a kind of disconnect now between monetary policy, which is what the Bank of England does, And that kind of controls the demand side. And then what the government can do via fiscal policy and spending money, which is the supply side, which is affected. And I think at the moment they're pulling very strongly in opposite directions. What the government's done is very inflationary. So as a result, the Bank of England is going to have to be the the one which everyone blames as the baddie because they're going to have to raise interest rates hugely. I mean, market forecasts are for the Bank of England base rate to reach over 6% by next year. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking. If you look at what markets are pricing in for hikes for the Bank of England, it's gone up hugely as a result of the mini budget. So I think what's going to happen effectively is they'll probably be blamed as the baddie in the whole saga. You've been doing that for years, Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, everyone's caught up with you. But, you know, even I don't want to use Andrew Bailey as a whipping boy. He's in such a tough place here, right? Because a lot of people are saying, oh, you should have an emergency rate hike, just come out and hike rates today. But, you know, you've got a new government in, that would be political dynamite, right? To just come out the day after a mini budget and start smashing up interest rates. And it's interesting that when they came out to try and reassure markets, the Bank of England put out a statement that said, we will not hesitate (laughs) as they hesitated. So there was a tweet from the Bank of England that said the MPC will not hesitate to change interest rates by as much as needed to return inflation to the 2% target sustainably in the medium term. And the minute they release this, sterling tanked again. I think the difficulty now is that people just don't trust the policymakers to do what is necessary to stabilise markets. Yeah, there's a credibility gap. And Kwasi Kwarteng came out with this horrible statement, which is that markets will do what markets do as if, you know, it's not their problem. That's not what markets want to hear. You can't stick your finger up to markets and expect them to fund a huge increase in issuance. If you'd have just said something that was slightly placatory or maybe tried to elaborate how this would increase growth in the future with the understanding that, you know, this would require an increase in issuance of bonds, you know, maybe that would have made it more palatable. I mean, there's a naivety, I think, at the heart of government at the moment, just because it's a new administration. So yeah, they had the mini budget on Friday, the market hated it. 
And then over the weekend, Kwasi Kwarteng said, well, be prepared for more tax cuts to come, which was maybe the worst <laughs> thing he could have said. Because then Asian markets <laughs> opened on Monday and the pound got down to $1.03. But it has rallied a bit since then. But look, I think making fun of markets or, or kind of ignoring them and what they're telling you and not feeling that you have to justify what you've done. I think that's hugely problematic for the UK. Definitely. And I would say it's kind of a privilege to be a developed market and be able to issue your own currency, which is trusted by markets. Being able to borrow in your own currency is not a privilege that's open to most countries in the world. Most countries have to borrow in foreign currency. And, you know, you don't want to risk that. Right? That's such an advantage. I mean, they're guilt edge for a reason. I mean, having that guilt edge around government bonds, well, as they used to be when you had one of the certificates. But it meant something because they've been so good, the UK government, you know, even since the Napoleonic Wars, which we probably won as a result of our ability to issue debt and to fund the war. Since then, we haven't defaulted. You know, there's been no default. That's an incredible record for a government. And of course, I don't think that there's going to be a default this time around. I think, you know, that's very unlikely. I should, I should stress that. <laughs> but I think the kind of credibility in terms of issuance and being responsible with the debt is very important. The other thing is they did buck a lot of norms here. So usually when you've got a major fiscal event like a budget, the government will ask the Office for Budget Responsibility to produce forecasts, show what's going to happen to the debt, how it's going to be paid for, all that kind of stuff. This time they just said, no, we don't even want the official forecast, right? Let's just put our fingers in our ears. They have backpedaled on that. So they have said that actually, no, we will now ask the OBR to fund this. And that will come out in the November statement, their latest update. Yeah. Let's see what it says, right? Because if it shows debt rising in perpetuity into the future, that's not going to be a good story for markets. And the other thing is when Liz Truss came into power and Kwasi Kwarteng took over the Treasury Department, they sacked Tom Scholar, who's the permanent secretary to the Treasury and has been there, I think, since Gordon Brown. He's worked in various guises for government and is kind of the most senior civil servant in the Treasury. And... Well, one, his name is Tom Scholar. And if you look at a picture of him, he's perfectly cast as like the top <laughs> civil servant in name and in image. And also, you know, you're a new administration. Why are you sort of picking a fight with the Treasury? I know the argument has always been that the Treasury sort of imposes its own conditions on government. Like Liz Trust referred to the abacus economics. So basically the Treasury is always trying to make the sums add up, which... I don't know. Do you not want that from a treasury? <laughs> <laughs> and there are kind of checks and balances. You know, they try and stop people doing what just happened over the last week, which is to create huge volatility in sterling, but also the funding market, because ultimately this is going to hurt us. And you mentioned that fiscal policy and monetary policy are now pulling in opposite directions. And I've heard that sort of described as trying to drive a car while having your foot on both the accelerator and the brake, and it's just going to be impossible to drive. And the other problem is the UK's got a double deficit. Now, normally in an emerging market, this would be a huge issue. When the IMF does its financial stability report, this is one of the red flags that they look for. So what a double deficit means, a twin deficit is also another name for it, is when your current account is negative, that means that your imports exceed your exports. The other component is that you've got a fiscal deficit so that the government's spending more than it's earning in taxes. So what that means overall is that you're borrowing from foreigners to fund your purchases of foreign goods. In other words, you rely on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, I've heard Mark Carney said the kindness of strangers. Exactly. So that's fine as long as you don't stick your finger up at the strangers because they're less likely to actually fund that deficit if that's the case. 
So this double deficit is a real problem. And the current account deficit right now is roughly 8%. So it's 8.3%. And that's the worst it's been for a long time. Usually that's a kind of wartime current account deficit. Part of that is due to the huge cost of energy imports, which are coming in in dollars. And of course, if sterling's weakened, that becomes that much more expensive. And that's not unique to the UK. You know, we've seen Japan, Germany fall into the same problem. But it's now exacerbated by the fact that we've pushed the value of sterling down even further. You know, there are lots of positives about the UK, which we should stress. If you look at the debt to GDP ratio, it's not too bad. It's roughly at 100% currently. So our GDP is roughly 2 trillion and our debt is roughly the same amount. If you look at Germany, it's a bit less, 70%. But the average for G7, the rich countries, is 137%. So, you know, we've actually got less debt to GDP than the US, which is 133%. We do have a little bit of wiggle room when it comes to increasing our debt. So that's a positive. So we're not an EM. I mean, some people have said that the UK is starting to react like an emerging market. And it's true that when you increase yield and your currency weakens, that's what you'd expect during an EM crisis. Yeah, I read Larry Summers basically saying that. So he said he would not be surprised if the pound eventually gets below $1 if the current policy path is maintained. And he said, it makes me very sorry to say, but I think the UK is behaving a bit like an emerging market, turning itself into a submerging market. That's a great line. I can see why he said it. Yeah, I don't really like Larry Summers. No, I know you don't. But on this point, he made the right quote. Yeah, I don't think we're an emerging market, though. I think think we're still a long way from that. I mean, just look at the GDP of the UK, look at its history of, you know, managing its finances well. I think this is more of a hiccup than a long-term problem. Yeah, because with an emerging market, the classic crisis is you've borrowed a lot in dollars, say. You've got that twin deficit you mentioned, and you basically can't afford to make the debt payments on dollars because you can't print dollars, right? (laughs) Only the US government can print dollars. At least the UK has borrowed in sterling. What we do have to do, like you say, we're importing more than we're exporting, is raise foreign currency to pay for those imports. Now, could you get a currency crisis just because you can't afford the imports? Is that possible? Possible. I think it's unlikely. I mean, the thing about currency is that it's a natural release valve. As the value of selling weakens, obviously it's making imports more expensive, but it's making our products, when we sell them, much cheaper and more competitive with other markets around the world. So I think at a certain point, this release valve will start to help us. We're probably already there. But, you know, we don't export that much stuff. And that's the problem. If you look at the current account balance and split it into services and manufacturing, the amount of physical stuff which we export, there we've got a big trade imbalance. You know, we import a lot more stuff than we export. For services, that's our real skill. And there we export more than we import. That pushes in the opposite direction on the current account. So I think as long as we focus on what we're good at and deregulation of banking, perhaps will allow us to be more competitive in that space. That's certainly something that we're good at. But also things like software and scientific research, technological innovation, you know, all things which the UK has historically been very good at. If we can boost that, then, you know, that could potentially turn things around. So I can kind of see a way through this crisis where we really do come out of it stronger But unfortunately, it means this temporary pain of higher borrowing costs and a weaker currency. I guess there are still big questions that need to be answered, right? How high is the Bank of England going to hike interest rates? What's the effect on the housing market going to be? 
because we know how important the housing market is to the UK economy and psychologically to people in the UK. And half of UK wealth is in property. That's certainly going to have a psychological impact if we see our house prices collapse. I think a collapse is unlikely because there's such a lack of supply in the UK. And I think the other question is that relationship between the Bank of England and the government. So in the Conservative Party leadership campaign, Liz Truss said she wanted to rewrite the Bank of England's mandate. That's always going to be a scary thing, I think, for markets to think, are you going to take the central bank's prime goal away from fighting inflation? Well, that is what sets us apart from Turkey. In Turkey, President Erdogan, he says that there's a kind of cabal of people who say that this crazy idea of raising interest rates when inflation is high is completely wrong. He thinks that you should actually have lower interest rates to reduce inflation. Unfortunately, markets don't agree with him, which is why Turkey is the one currency or one of the few currencies that have devalued more than sterling this year. The fact that we do have an independent central bank is incredibly important. That's what marks us out as non-EM. That's a key kind of discriminator. So I was really worried when Liz Truss was talking about changing the Bank of England's remit, particularly during a crisis period like this. Because, you know, one way of looking at this mini budget is as a war plan. I think some people have pointed that out. I mean, the spending deficit is certainly on that kind of scale. But it's, it's there for a reason. There's no question that effectively Putin has weaponized energy and Europe has to respond almost on a war footing to that threat. This is economic war and this is an economic war budget. And I think the government maybe should have stressed that. You know, I think it would have made it more palatable if they'd have said that because it's kind of true. Yeah, and I think the other thing to say is we don't know how things are going to play out right. The justification, I think, in the minds of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng is that kind of old school Ronald Reagan position, isn't it? Is you cut tax rates, that boosts growth, and they kind of pay for themselves over time. Now, certainly from the economists I've read, that doesn't seem to add up. Certainly where you've got tax rates at the kind of moderate levels we already have, if they're in the 90% kind of range, then yeah, maybe you can pay for them by cutting taxes. But you know, who knows, right? Maybe, maybe it'll be the first time it works in the developed market. And then, you know, hats off to them. Well done. So in power, they've got to be able to implement their policies and see how it plays out. It's just the market doesn't wait to see how it plays out, right? It says, we don't believe you. Therefore, your borrowing costs are going way up. And so I think there's a timing issue here. Eventually, I think some of these policies could work in terms of stimulating growth. Unfortunately, there's going to be a general election in the UK, probably before the effects start to be felt, the beneficial effects, if there are some. So I think that's a problem which the government's going to face, which is a loss of power. And I think if you look at the popularity of the current government, it's certainly plummeted. And the general feeling is, from the one survey that I looked at, is that they're not really responsible. And particularly if we see house prices fall, I think that'll be a problem. And of course, the regional inequality, which people will see immediately, you know, that's not going to play well, particularly for the new regions, which the government's won over to voting for the Conservatives. So I think the problem is going to be political transition. There's probably going to be a Labour government in the UK as a result of this crisis. I mean, two years is a long time in politics. Let's see how it plays out. Certainly in the polls at the moment, Labour's way ahead. And so to wrap it up, what does this mean for investors, both those of us living in the UK and investing? And, you know, potentially people outside the UK looking at the UK and thinking, oh, things are going a bit wrong. Is this the time to buy some sort of UK assets? What do you think? Yeah, buy UK stuff. You know, I'm not saying that just because, you know, I'm based in the UK, although that is kind of true. 
we need the money to pay for our imports. <laughs> <laughs> but the UK is looking very, very cheap. So if you plot CAPE, you know, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, the UK is one of the cheapest markets out there. So yeah, snap up some bargains in UK equity. But is that what you really think, Roman? Yes, kind of. You know, I mean, I think at a certain point, is the UK going to go under completely? No, things will get better. And this is just a temporary crisis. And there are opportunities when that happens. So from the point of view of people who are based in the UK, any money that you've invested already into global equity, US equity, well, that's benefited massively from the fact that sterling's weakened. So that's certainly helped you on the way down for sterling. On the way up, any new money that you put in today may operate in reverse. So as sterling strengthens, it reduces the value of your foreign investments for new investments made today. So what some people are considering is buying currency hedged versions of global equity indices. Now, that's pretty unusual. Normally, you don't care about currency hedging equity because usually the equity returns far outweigh currency movements. But when you've got a huge dislocation like this, people are thinking, well, sterling's temporarily weak, but it's going to gain value again. Maybe go back to where it was before this crisis, maybe to 130. We don't know that, though. We don't know that. And in fact, if you look over the last 50 years, on average, sterling's weakened by about one and a half percent per year. And it's lost 55 percent of its value versus the dollar over that 50-year period. So this has been a kind of long-term trend. It hasn't all gone smoothly. Every time there's a crisis, you know, the dot-com bubble, the global financial crisis, and now we've had Brexit and the latest crisis, every time it comes out weaker and it doesn't quite recover to where it was before. So it's gone in big legs with every crisis. But look, if you look at purchasing power parity, then the value of sterling should be much higher than it is today. Yeah, but markets are clearly pricing in the fact that things can get worse. But, you know, we can become in Italy or Greece. Hopefully we won't and we shouldn't. But we can. This is what happens to some countries. Look, ultimately, it's a very productive country, quite creative in terms of tech, science. Great podcasts. Brilliant podcasts. Can I just say that? (laughs) (laughs) And ultimately, I think we will recover. We'll come through this, maybe improve because of it. That is the hope. I mean, presumably political parties now ahead of budgets are going to think much more carefully about what the market reaction will be. And maybe they'll think there's a reason the Treasury likes its abacus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet some people are regretting they didn't go for Sunak now. Yeah, I mean, he did sort of kind of warn of this potential for a run on the pound. I mean, I guess just to wrap it up, my feeling really is that it's not necessarily a bad policy package. If you're right wing, right? This is the kind of thing you like. You like tax cuts, you like deregulation, let's go for growth. Great. It's just coming at the wrong time, right? (laughs) What we had, we came out of the financial crisis in 2008. There was a lot of slack in the economy. People were out of work. There was a potential for a lot of growth. But unfortunately, we had austerity at that time when we could have been investing at basically zero interest rates. Now we're in a situation where borrowing costs are really high. We're having to fund huge amounts of imports, energy imports, and the economy is running at full capacity. Unemployment is really low. Inflation is really high. Like, this is the time for austerity, right? We did it the wrong way around. <laughs> and a lot, of, a lot of countries have gone down the same route. You know, before this crisis, we had austerity, we had very tight fiscal policy with very accommodative monetary policy with low interest rates, whereas that's now reversed. So some people have said the Bank of England hasn't got the memo yet. 
But you're absolutely right about the timing. I think, really, it couldn't have come at a worse time to decide to cut taxes. And I think that'll essentially scupper this plan, which is a pity because I think there are good aspects to it. During crises like these, it's really helpful to have other people who are in the same boat, who you can talk to and talk through the problems. As a member of the Pension Craft community, you can do that on Slack. So why not join us? If you want to learn more, go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from Luke, who says, why shouldn't I just invest everything in the S&P 500? Why am I being told to diversify across other countries and equity markets? Because if you look at it, he says, the fees for an S&P 500 tracker are way lower than for global equity. So in the UK, I don't know, you can get an S&P 500 tracker for maybe 0.05%, something like that. And in the US, you can get it for free, I think, for no fee. Whereas global equity, you're paying more than 0.2%. So it's a lot higher, four or five times as high. Also, the historic returns are higher for the S&P 500 than for global equity, at least over the last 25 years. And global equity is 55 or 60% US stocks anyway. So you're kind of paying more for, in large part, the same thing. So Robin, why diversify beyond the US? It's true. I mean, the US has done incredibly well recently. And by recently, we're talking about decades here, certainly over the previous decade. But it's not always been the case that the US outperforms. So this is a form of recency bias. Just because the US has done incredibly well over the last decade, and it's basically done better than any other country. There's no question about that. But that's not been the case if you look further back in time. So when there's a crisis and the US is more expensive than other regions, so I'm thinking here about the dot-com bubble, for example, or if there's a crisis which is US-centric, which is not the case this time around, then usually the decade that follows is one of US underperformance. So the energy crisis in the 70s, the US underperformed. And then, of course, the epicentre of the global financial crisis was in the US. The dot-com bubble also, the epicentre was in the US, where the overvaluations were greatest. And that had a decade where it underperformed, which followed. So I think that's the key thing. And if you look over the previous 50 years, all the way back to 1970, there's an MSCI global index, which excludes the US, and a US MSCI index. And if you look at the percentage of years where the US outperforms, it's roughly 55%. So roughly over half the time, the US does outperform. But what you've got to remember is half the time, it doesn't outperform. So I think at the moment, we're looking at a situation where the US is overvalued relative to other markets. It's done a lot of share buybacks, which led to the outperformance. And those share buybacks were done at a period of overvaluation, a lot of them. And that in turn has destroyed value when markets normalise. So I think those are the fundamental problems. And probably in the next decade, the outperformance won't be as great for the US. That would be my guess. Is it true, though, that because the fees are so much lower for buying the US than the rest of the world, that the returns from the rest of the world have to be so much greater just to make up for the fact that fees are higher? But if you go for developed markets, so for example, I've just shifted my portfolio from a global all cap global equity index to a developed world XUK index. Oh, you've already downgraded us to an emerging market, have you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually says XUK, right? So the UK is still, still DM. But that thing, I think, is just 0.14%. So the fee for that's not too high. As long as you stick to developed markets, that's where the fees are lowest. 
So you can either reduce your fee by splitting out emerging markets. So 10% roughly by market cap would be EM. So if you pay 0.22 for that, it's only 10% of your overall allocation. And I've just excluded EM altogether. I think the other thing, why do we go for these, you know, passive index trackers? It's presumably because we want broad diversification, right? So to me, it doesn't really make sense to then, you know, just concentrate onto one country if you're going for this kind of passive route. It's assuming that there's not going to be a US-centric crisis at some point, and also that valuation doesn't matter, whereas we know it does. If valuations are very high compared to their long-term average, they do mean revert. And so that usually reduces long-term returns. So, you know, any kind of long-term forecast you look for at the moment will downgrade the US as a result of that overvaluation. Vanguard's got a 10-year outlook, which does that, for example. But it is true that when the US is, let's say, 60% of the global market, and correlations between equity markets around the world are very high. So when the US falls, the world falls. When the US rises, the world rises. That maybe the diversification benefits are not huge. Yeah, certainly if there's a crisis in the US, it's going to drag everyone else down. You're not going to get better results as a result of having non-US allocations in that kind of scenario. But during the good times, I suspect what we'll see is that other regions maybe outperform the US. And it's hard to know which of those would be, a priori, but it would be somewhere outside the US where valuations are lower. Maybe the UK. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.